My name is Lene McClellan, and I'm a salon owner in Chelsea, Michigan, and the creator of Radioactive. I've been inspired by the people I get to talk to every day to create a platform for those in and around our community to tell their stories, share what's important to them, and help us uncover what makes us human. Visit RadioactiveChelsea.com to see how you can get involved. Today I have the pleasure of talking with my friend, Susan Brown. I met Susan a year or so ago through some very good friends of mine, and I've grown to love her and her family. She has a grandson who is three years old, the same age as my son, and not only are they friends, but they look like they could be brothers. (laughs) So the life story that I've asked Susan to share with us today not only leaves my stomach in knots, but also inspires me to do everything I can to protect my son and his friends and my friend's loved ones from gun violence in school. 20 years ago, on April 20th, America experienced what was then known as the deadliest school shooting in America, the Columbine High School Massacre. This massacre resulted in the death of 12 students and one teacher. Six months later, there was a shooting at a Jewish daycare center that resulted in three injured children, a teenager, and an office worker. What also happened was the birth of the grassroots movement of mothers demanding stricter gun control policies. Locally and regionally, Susan became the coordinator for the educational crusade that became known as the Million Mom March. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. It is such an honor to have you as a guest on my show. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you, Lene. Thank you. Today is actually Labor Day, which I've learned has some significance with the Million Mom March that we'll talk about later on. But first, what I would love to know, Susan, is what was it that inspired you to take action 20 years ago? Um, There was a, um, certainly in the country, um, at the time, there was a growing uh, shock at the level of gun violence, the escalation of gun violence. Uh, Columbine was, was just devastating. It was, um, it was simply uh, gut-wrenching. And, and there followed um, Jonesboro, Paducah. I mean, the shootings were getting more and more frequent. And I think that we were being, um, I think that we were becoming informed of more of the gun violence that was going on, not just in schools and in communities, but in uh, places of work for example, uh, discontented employers that were coming to the, the plant, the manufacturing plant, and, and shooting people. Or there was the law firm in, in California that a shooter came in and killed seven or eight people. I mean, instances that, that today are happening all the time, but back then were still pretty shocking. We were still at the, um, it was an awakening of the potential of gun violence. Um, in this country. And that's not to say that gun violence wasn't going on in certain communities. Um, Certainly guns have been used to commit suicide Mm -hmm. um, for much longer. But I think that the the butchering of the students at Columbine um, and the, I guess maybe it was even CNN, you know, the the ability of the press, of the media to be showing this to us um, in real time, 
you know, was let alone every night and the next day. And to see these kids trying to flee the school, to see them trying to escape from the second floor windows, it was, um, we couldn't turn away from that anymore. But the, but the single incident that, that awakened me or caused me to think about my role in um, my society or what it had become was reading an article by Anna Quinlan in Newsweek magazine um, back in the day when we did we actually subscribed to magazines. Um, I was a subscriber to Newsweek, and Anna Quinlan was one of my favorite writers. She's a fiction writer, and she writes essays. And she had written in the My Turn section, the very last page of Newsweek, an article about gun violence and about what needed to be done and about this mom in New Jersey, Donna Jeese Thomas's, who had decided enough was enough and the moms in the country had to get together and put their foot down and do something about it, that if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be the moms, just out of sheer instinct to protect our children. And so Donna Deese Thomas, um, and and what I'm going to say right now, I didn't entirely realize until last night when I was looking back to my notes, on Labor Day of 1999, she held a press conference, and she appeared on Good Morning America and announced that she had pulled a permit for 10,000 marchers on the mall on Mother's Day, May 14th. That would be May 14th, 2000, but she, but she started planning it and announced it on, on Labor Day of 1999. <laughs> and um, I think there's roughly nine months in there, so she tied it to the gestation period of a child, and oh, and gosh. during the whole planning and organization for the march, we kind of used that as a um, barometer of how we were doing and how close we were getting to Mother's Day, to the birth of, of our um, effort, you know, that we were all undertaking. But So I read this article about Donna Deese Thomas in Anna Quinlan's common, column, excuse me, and I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I decided I had to go. I knew that I had to go. But then I decided that really what I needed to do was do more. I just didn't know what more was. And um, I was really nervous because I could tell that I was thinking big, that I was thinking that I really needed to commit myself to this, to help this woman in New Jersey and all the moms across the country to take this a stand on this issue on gun violence. I had two little kids. I had an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, my two daughters, Abigail and Amelia. And the thought of, of anything happening to them, anybody shooting them, I just, you know, I could empathize. Yeah, yes. With the other parents. I thought, well, I'll, I didn't know what to do myself. So I sent a letter. I, made a, I wrote a letter. I typed a letter. And I sent it to my 10 girlfriends, 10 of my girlfriends. And I included a, a copy of the article that Anna Quinlan had written. And I also found the website, which was a new thing to us, <laughs> websites. I found the website. It was one page that Donna Deese Thomas had, had put up for the Million Mom March. And I sent a copy of that as well to my friends. And I said, I, I think we need to do something. And, I, and I'm going to do something, but I want you to help me. And if you're interested, why don't you show up at my house Saturday morning at 8 o'clock and we'll have coffee and talk about it. Six of my friends showed up to that first meeting and we immediately went into planning 
how we were going to get buses, what kind of publicity we were going to do, how to, how to get the word out to women, just what to do. None of us had ever done anything like this before. We just, we were clueless, but we all felt a deep conviction. I mean, we all felt a responsibility to our common humanity. I also know a lot of people that are, are gun owners. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I know that there's a, a reasonable that most of the gun owners are reasonable gun owners. Um, my ex-husband had a lot of guns, but they were always locked up. People have gun safes. I mean, there's things that you can do. And part of the platform of the Million Mile March at the time was to um, put pressure on the gun manufacturers to put trigger like thumb identity, thumb print identity like we have on our cell phones. Yeah. That's been around for, I mean, that was available when we did the march 20 years ago. Wow. But, oh yeah, you can you can do thumbprint identity on a trigger on a gun. So that the gun that you have if your gun is in your car, unfortunately, and your car is stolen and the gun is in there and then that gun goes into the black market. But if you have that thumbprint identity on it, nobody else can use it. You know, there's there's a lot this is what I'm saying that the problem we should address the problem mm-hmm. and not get hung up on the um on the uh, the counter issue of why we can't do anything mm-hmm. because we can we're a smart country we've got brilliant people we can figure this out we just have to have people voicing their and then it gets back to grassroots we have to have people standing up and saying to our elected officials doing nothing is not acceptable and that's what I think the moms felt when we sat around my kitchen table we said we can do something or we can do nothing and doing nothing is unacceptable. The fact that we didn't know shit about shit, about, you know, oh my God, organizing a march? Are you kidding <laughs> me? I mean, once we got into it, so we got on, we got going the end of January. Okay. And the march was May 14th. So that's what, three and a half months? And this was local. This like was- your, it's your grassroots movement started here. Yeah, well, we, I had read about Donna D, so I contacted her. So I emailed her, the woman in New Jersey that, that had pulled the permit, and I emailed her and told her I was a mom from uh, Gross Point. At the time, I lived in Gross Point Park, so I was in Michigan, and I really wanted to get involved. And she said, oh, my gosh, we've got three other moms in Michigan that are working on it, too, and here are their email addresses. So at the time... I didn't have my own email. I had never had an email address. This was kind of a new thing. I was working with my husband to his business, and so I was using the business email. But um, many individuals didn't have their own emails at this point. You might have had them through work, work emails. But I, she gave me the email addresses of these uh, three other women. One was in Kalamazoo, one was in Plymouth, and one was in Troy. And so I reached out to them, and and they said, you know, basically, wonderful. Yes, we're going to start doing the same thing, and we're just working in our local communities, and we'll support each other as much as we can with information. And we got together, I think, a week later, too, just to say, again, how do we do this? You know, what? how do you start a rail? How do you get people on board? How do you inform people that there is going to be a march we're going to get some buses, and we want you to be on our buses because we need to get as many people. We were shooting for 200,000. We were shooting for 200,000 people from across America to show up on the mall on Mother's Day to protest gun violence. 
Well, we ended up with 20 buses just from Michigan. Plus, we had hundreds and hundreds of women that flew, you know, that didn't, didn't take the buses, that flew. And from all across the country, we ended up 800, 850,000 people on the mall that day, which pretty much broke all records. And broken only last year with the March for Our Lives. The march that was organized by the Parkland students. Yes. Um, march for Our Lives in, in D.C. That was maybe, there were 1.2 million marchers that turned out for that. And I went to a march actually, downtown Detroit at Hart Plaza. There was a march that we did. There were sympathy marches all over the country the day that the Parkland students uh, held their march in Washington. And similarly, um, the march on the Mall, May 14th, 1999, the Million Mom March, there were marches all over the country. Lansing had a huge march because there were a lot of women and men, and there were a lot of men that participated in this, that just couldn't get to Washington, D.C. So there were we broke the million mark easily yeah. if you add in the marches that were all over the country, including Alaska and Hawaii. And all over the, there were a few in the world, too, you know, overseas, although we didn't get that information as readily because of, we didn't really have that, the active internet. And it was just a different world, 1999. When I was going back through my materials, thank you for asking me to do this because I had everything boxed up for 15 years now. I haven't looked at it. And I was going back through the materials and I was absolutely amazed at what we had managed to do with so little social media. I mean, you right. know, we, we did, we put Joanne, so in my core group of women, my friends, my friend Joanne Murphy um, became the bus lady. Okay. So she became the one that was responsible for all logistics, which was the buses and the hotels. My other friend, Margie Teal, who is from Ann Arbor, she became uh, the Ann Arbor coordinator. So she just started the Ann Arbor group. And so there was a very strong Ann Arbor group as well. And then after the march, she ended up running for Ann Arbor City Council and served eight years on Ann Arbor City Council. Wow. Megan uh, Maher Brennan was our kind of, kind of secretary uh, communications um, person. And Megan did that part. And, and after the march, actually now she's a sitting Wayne County Circuit Court judge. <laughs> Very interesting how I think the, the march really motivated all of us to stay maybe a little more involved and in tune with our communities and to get involved and contribute in positive ways. But, um, and then we had um, another woman who took over PR and she was doing research for us. She was a really good researcher and we had to learn about gun laws. I mean, we knew nothing. We knew nothing about what laws were in effect how the gun industry, you know, how the effect of the NRA on blocking legislation, we didn't know. Um, I knew nothing about the Consumer Protection Act. I knew nothing about how tobacco and guns were the only two products that were not, that were specifically exempt from the Consumer Protection Act. So, isn't that crazy? Wow, yeah. I know. Consumer Protection Act was maybe 1971, I think. Two things, tobacco, guns, the only two things not covered. So, so the moms, the Million Mom March, often used this image of a, of a teddy bear. And they pointed out that there was something like, you know, 200 different consumer protection laws that determined how this teddy bear was created. The eyes don't fall off and possibly choke your child. 
right. right? So they would take it through all the different, but yet a handgun had zero, had zero obligation under the Consumer Protection Act. So there was so many things like that that, I mean, we, none of us knew a thing about the law part of it. Or, and increasingly, I found myself, I guess to back up, the, the movement um, started just gather, gathering um, a lot of publicity. Rosie O'Donnell came on board. Oprah came on board. I mean, right in, right around that January time period that we were starting up, a, a couple of things happened uh, that gave us national visibility. Um, we got the um, the faith movement, the or the faith um, infrastructure. The Archdiocese of Detroit came right on board with us. Um, a number of different faith organizations because they, I mean. If you're going to be right to life, right? If you're going to believe in humanity, if you're going to believe in caring for your brother and sister, then that's a logical step for the faith community to take. Agreed. The schools, the same way. The NEA endorsed us. So the PTAs endorsed us. They came on board right away. Um, and people started hearing about the march from a lot of different um, sources. And so our mission got easier the more and more that we um, that we went out to the public and spoke, and I started doing interviews, which was something you know I, I had never done before. I did a WJR morning show or afternoon show, something on a Saturday or Sunday. I remember that I was doing it from my kitchen, and it was a call-in talk show, and I was the guest. Oh, okay. And um, and I was getting all these calls from all these men that were just furious with me that we were doing this, that the moms were sticking our nose in business we didn't belong in, you know, that, that it was keep our hands off their guns, basically. And what the heck was I doing going to Washington, D.C. on Mother's Day where my proper place was at home with my family, you know, and who was going to be taking care of my children? And, you know, I mentioned, of course, they had a father and he was very kind. <laughs> to take care of them when I was gone but but also you know there was one call at the end I remember and I will, was very grateful to this man because these interviews got pretty brutal and I was not used to doing this I was not used to doing an interview and trying to um, just keep thinking the message you know we were we had a good cause our hearts were in the right place you know what we were doing was right there were always going to be people that were against us and that were going to say bad things or that were going to threaten to blow up our buses, which they did. I mean, we were, you know, there were always attacks and threats that were made, but we were, we knew we were in the right. How can you be wrong about protecting people from being slaughtered, being shot? One of the things that I read about the Million Mom March was that it was an educational crusade and not necessarily an anti-gun movement. And I have down the, the mission of the Million Mom March. It says, we as mothers endorse the following, sensible cooling off periods and background checks, license handgun owners and register all handguns, uh, safety locks for handguns, limit the purchase of one handgun a month, and a no-nonsense enforcement of gun laws. The Parkland students have started a grassroots movement similar to the Million Mom March, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And they are proposing 
legislation for the upcoming election? You know, it's um, everybody needs to play a role in this. Mm -hmm. And there is a role for everyone to play, whether it's March for Our Lives with those students. And it's, it's wonderful that they're providing leadership on this um, and motivating uh, kids and young adults, mm -hmm. you know, their age. I mean, the, the Million Moms are uh, a part of the Brady campaign now. Mm -hmm. Brady, Sarah Brady, I'm talking about the ultimate mom, really. She was a mom before, she, before there were the moms because Jim Brady, um, a lot of people forget that he was uh, President Reagan's press secretary. And when, on the attempted assassination in 1981 of President Reagan, he was shot through the head. The bullet was meant for Reagan, but Jim Brady took it in his head, and he was permanently disabled after that. And Sarah Brady, his wife, started the Brady campaign. She was the first person that really started trying to change the law, trying from an infrastructure point of view, trying to use her connections in Washington and to galvanize um, other leaders around um, some common sense gun laws. Moms Demand Action, that group came, really kind of evolved after the Million Moms. They're like the younger, they're probably like the group between ages, your ages and, and my age. Okay, I'm 62 and you're probably, I don't know, 22. So oh, no. <laughs> Thank you though. <laughs> so the group somewhere right after us, the younger people that came along, actually the social media savvy. Because when Moms Demand Action started, they were totally about social media. They, we organized ours, going back to my Joanne, my bus woman, when we decided that we had to um, take this to the streets and we had to load our buses. The only thing that the only way we could figure out how to start doing this was we put we raised money to buy ads in the newspapers, and they were little tiny ads, and they said. Um, March on Washington on Mother's Day, the ride of your life, um, help the million moms, you know, something like that. I, I'll show you some pictures of them, of the ads. And it said for $75, you get round trip bus fare and one night in the hotel. And then we put them in the Macomb Daily, the Gross Point News, the Detroit News, the Detroit Free Press, and we would list where we were going to be. We had worked with public libraries. I've forever indebted to public libraries because they are a place where they usually have a room and they don't charge you to use it mm -hmm. and you can have meetings there and they provide a very democratic, they help our democracy by just providing that and they certainly, certainly helped us because we would go to the St. Clair Shores Public Library, we would go to the community colleges and we would hold informational meetings and we'd put the, the dates and the locations of those informational meetings in the newspaper, and then Joanne and I would pack up our brochures, pack up our easel, pack up our our information and our our uh, t-shirts, and we would go and we would just wait and hope that some moms would show up. And every time we had thirty, probably thirty moms, forty moms show up, and we were just so heartened by that, and so. Um, just so amazed, and, and we got, the, the more we talked to these people, I mean, I started off the march thinking one way about protecting my children, but as I started talking to the people that were showing up at these meetings, these were victims. These were people who had lost their children. This was a woman, Jerry Goff, from Marysville, 
who had lost her husband in one of these plant shootings and was left alone with five children. This was a husband and wife in my community whose daughter had been shot outside the soup kitchen saloon downtown and attempted carjacking. She had survived, and she was one of our members too. But I, I realized rather quickly that this wasn't theoretical, that the people that were showing up at these meetings and the people that were getting involved were the victims, and we were providing them an opportunity to talk to other victims. Hmm. And so, you know, we were... The sense of responsibility as we moved through the process, the three and a half months that we had to get people to Washington, um, we started to realize that, you know, this was, this was about them. Right. And then when Kayla Rollins was um, shot, she was a first grader in Flint, and she was shot the end of February. I can't remember the exact day, if it was February 21st or 29th, but we were way into our organizing at this point, and, and we just could not believe when that happened, when, when we heard the, new, the news that uh, her little first grade friend had picked up his parents' gun and put it in his backpack. He thought it was a toy. He wasn't being, you know, he didn't have any ill intent. He was a first grader. He was six years old. And he took it out of his backpack and to show it to her and shot and killed her. And it just, you know, these were the kind of moments that we, that we realized that we had to continue with this, that we had to continue um, bringing people and educating people. Like you say, we got really involved with that. There was a, a movement called ASK, ASK at the time, too. And they had, um, they had little placards that you could put in your window of your house to show that you were a gun-safe house or that you had your guns locked up. So that community members, friends of your, the parents of your kids' friends could, would know that they could bring their kids to your house to play and that it would be safe. And it was a movement to encourage parents to ask their friends. I know it's tough. It was hard. It was hard for us, too. But to ask your friends, when you drop your kids off at somebody's house to play, say, by the way, I don't want to offend you, but do you have guns? And where are they? And are they locked up? You know, are they in the nightstand? So that was the educational component, you know, which was certainly brought home by the shooting of little Kayla in Flint. So once you got to Washington, what was the march like? Oh my gosh, it was so amazing. The march was, um, it was, it was probably one of the most amazing days of my life, truly. It was a beautiful sunny day. Um, we were down pretty early, six in the morning, um, going down into the metro in DC to get to the mall. And everywhere, if you can imagine, 750,000 marchers, people were everywhere in their million mountain, their pink hats and their t-shirts and their um, signs. And we finally were made our way up onto the mall and proceeded, we tried to come in as states that, that happened successfully with some states and not successfully with other states, but the Michigan delegation all met in one spot and we had a big long um, sign that people carried and we marched in together. We tried to march in, in alphabetical order into the, um, into the mall. But I think the, the overwhelming, and I did end up taking my daughter, Abigail. She was eight at the time, and, and she went. I thought it was a good idea for her to, you know, 
participate right in her democracy it was a it was a good lesson and we had quite a few kids on our bus actually um but the, i think that the thing that always sticks out the most with me was that um everywhere you looked there were pictures of people who had died people who had died to gun violence there were you know, their families had their signs with their pictures or they had them on their T-shirts. T- entire groups would have, almost like you see family reunions that have their family name on a T-shirt, you know, at a park. They'd have a picture of their son or their wife or their husband. It just, it, and it really brought it home as you look around, 750,000 people and how many faces there were looking out at you that had been killed by guns. I mean, by this one guy I was talking to, he was there on behalf of his daughter. He was from Chicago, I think. And his um, daughter had her apartment. I don't know if it was her first apartment, but she was living downtown. She was so excited. And unbeknownst to her, the man in the apartment next to her was cleaning his gun. And his gun went off accidentally. Um, and it the bullet went through the wall of his apartment and into her apartment and killed her. And, you know, you you talk to people and you hear these stories and you just, it's it's just sucks the energy out of you. It's just mind-boggling. And you just can't even imagine that how these people, what they've gone through and what they've suffered. And so the march was, I mean, it was a very positive. It was a, it was a um, joyous in, in one sense because we'd done it. We had 750,000, way more than the 10,000 that Donna Dees Thomas pulled the permit for. She had to keep pulling bigger permits, more than the, t- the 200,000. When we were at our best and feeling really optimistic, we thought 200,000. And, um, and so very proud, very full of ourselves and feeling that this was, that we had, were making a difference, you know, that we were raising the sensibility of the nation. And I think we did. I think we did. Um, but also just the sheer magnitude of voices. I kind of, it kind of made me think, I don't mean to disrespect, I hope this is, you know, heard in the uh, way in which it's meant, but I had an opportunity one time to go to Dachau concentration camp and, um, and the feeling there of the souls, like, you know, that you're somewhere where there was, a, a mass murder. You know, you you know that you're somewhere. You can't avoid the feeling in the air of the souls that are still there occupying that space. And I think that um, that's in a way how it was there as well. That you just looked around. You just knew that there were there were more people there in spirit hmm. than the people that were there in in life, thinking of them, you know, and um, that they were there, that those people were there. And it wasn't just that they were there on the t-shirts or on the posters or on the big signs that were being held up, but they were there um, in spirit and that we were doing this for them. And yeah. So what came following the march? One of the smartest things that the gun lobby did after, after the march, after we you know, we were we were really pretty strong. We were in a very strong position, and we were very and in May of 2000, it was a presidential year. There was an election coming up um, in November, 
And um, so we turned our efforts towards the campaign and towards electing candidates that believed in common sense gun legislation. And, um, and of course, we threw our support behind um, Vice President Gore, mm -hmm. who had been very clear on his support of an assault rifle ban and other steps that, um, that he would take. And then, you know, as we all know now, the election turned in, into the, it was put into the Supreme Court's hands. Uh, we didn't even know who was president for almost a month. And the Supreme Court ordered the recount in Florida, the district that likely would have swayed the, the election to Gore, stopped the recount, and the Supreme Court decided the um, election in favor of George Bush. That was certainly a setback. Um, but I think what what took a uh, what really stopped us in our tracks um, for a while and understandably was the uh, attack of 9/11 um, in yeah. 2001. Um, people turned more inward. They turned more concerned about um, protecting themselves. That we were under attack. People armed themselves. The, the gun sales after 9-11 just skyrocketed. I mean, it, I, it would be interesting to trace, you know, look at those figures, look at the sales figures from then and, and try to do some study to see how that impacted what we're going through now. But, um, but those things, uh, that, that hurt, you know, it hurt the movement for sure. Wondering if that's one of the problems that we're having today is that we, we have, have kind of maybe regressed into our own individualism and that we don't um, think about the common good as much as we need to. And that if we could get back to that feeling of uh, empathy and responsibility for each other, that maybe we can take this issue on and, and finally do what needs to be done. Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. You are You're such welcome, an Annette. inspiration yeah, to me. Just and a mom. <laughs> just a As a fellow mother, you are such an inspiration to me. Thank, thank you. you so much. If you have any questions or comments for Susan, please feel free to email Radioactive Chelsea, radioactivechelsea at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Radioactive Chelsea. Sign up at our website, RadioactiveChelsea.com, to receive notifications for when the next podcast is released.